that's funny. The uh, that countdown is always silly because it gives me anxiety and it makes my heart rate. No, you said there's and, going uh, to be a countdown. I thought it was like okay, maybe no. it's like an imaginary <laughs> countdown, but it did actually count down. <laughs> it, it did, and the uh, the audio for some reason picks up during the countdown. So we'll have so you and I will see the countdown, but when people listen to this recording, yeah. Uh, they're going to hear you making some noise oh, during the okay. countdown. I didn't know. So I think that's hilarious. <laughs> and it It's probably because I, I've been recording these episodes, but uh, everyone knows that I keep them raw yeah. and I don't uh, make adjustments to them, even when I'm monologuing on here. Yeah. Uh, but, but, I, but I guess, um, so uh, I know you as Catherine. Yes. Uh, for what? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but but you're telling me people call you Kathy. Yeah. Because it's shorthand. Yeah. Not only that, because where I'm from, like, you know, the grandmother, the grandfather, Catherine was a very hard name for them to pronounce. And uh, so I think Kathy works best and it fits my personality more. And I really wanted to change it legally, but everyone told me I was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Just like me. <laughs> Just be Kathy on paper, but uh, but my everyone told me I was crazy. Don't do that. You have such a nice name, and I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll do it. I'll stick to it. It's fine. I won't change my name. But <laughs> but everyone just knows me as Kathy. Even my PhD supervisors, no one calls me Catherine. Oh, yeah, wow. yeah. So. And so you so you see yourself as more of a Kathy Ka- than a Catherine. Yeah, <laughs> Catherine is. I love my name. And based on where I'm from, being called Catherine is not as available as in the UK. So now I'm in the UK, but I'm originally from Lebanon. Lebanon is like this small place in the Middle East, and Catherine was different. So, Mm. uh, and Catherine is like this very posh British lady that drinks tea at five and scones exactly i am not that i wish i was but i'm not but my mom loved this act this french actress and she basically named me after her catherine deneuve that's (laughs) yeah that's actually perfect and um i i think like so some people have figured this out by now but i uh for, for this podcast um I've been hosting people that are either uh, finishing their PhD mm. in political science mm. or that are uh, professors or other types of practitioners in the vein of human rights, sociology, mm. or, you know, just thinkers. But, but Catherine, maybe you could like give me some context on like where you're from okay. and how you decided to pursue your PhD in political science. Okay. Uh, so my PhD is actually in political marketing, which is a branch of, it's a different thing, but it's still within the same uh, branch of political science. Um, so I'm from Lebanon. It's again, it's a small place in the Middle East. I love where I'm from. So blessed to have, to, to have been born there, to be honest. Because um, it shapes you into who you are, I guess. Where you're from just shapes your personality and the way you think and the way you view the world and so on. And I did my undergrad in political science and international marketing in Lebanon. 
And then I interned like with the UN and I did like Minister of Foreign Affairs in Lebanon and I loved what I was doing. And I was like, okay, let me um, do a master's. So I did my master's, but I did it in media communications because when I was in the UN, I entered in that department and my manager was this amazing boss lady who was like so bright and so smart and so put together. And I'm like, okay, she knows what she's talking about. I'll do uh, a media communication master's. And I did that in London and I loved it as well. It was really nice. And then... Um, I was like, okay, I'm going to go back to Lebanon, try to find a job. But it was really hard to find a job that had like a media communication background, but also like in politics because of how Lebanon is and how it's made and uh, the way we think and everything. So it was complicated to say the least because I am very opinionated (laughs) because I don't just go with the flow. So that made it really hard. And uh, I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to dig a bit deeper. And I have amazing, amazing parents. Honestly, my parents are my rock and they're so encouraging and they're just really amazing. And my father was like, I want a daughter. Although I have three brothers, mind you, okay? He wants his daughter to have a PhD. Not the three uh not the three boys of the family you know he wants the daughter to have a phd and he was like i would love my daughter to have a phd just go for it and so on and my mom is so encouraging so they were like please just do this one thing because you can because we see you getting to that level i'm like okay i'll try and um it's easy for us to be in love with politics coming from lebanon because we're born into a chaotic world of politics and if it's not a member of the family that's into politics it's our neighbors if it's not our neighbor it's my friend if it's not my friend it's my teacher so it's it was everywhere when we were growing up so i was like okay i'll do my phd and i want to do it combining my undergrad and my master's so what better thing to do than to have like media communications and politics together and do like political marketing, political communication. Initially though, okay, I wanted to do it on terrorist organizations because being in Lebanon, being surrounded by um, a lot of like growing up, Al-Qaeda, ISIS and so on. I'm like, okay, I want to see what's going on in this world. I want to see how they think and how they become so powerful because they're really dangerous and their danger comes from them being so powerful. And uh, and it was just fascinating how people are driven to them like because they recruit people, yeah? So at some point in time, ISIS was recruiting a lot of people from all over the world. And I found it fascinating, <laughs> to be honest. And I'm like, how? I mean, for me, a normal person these are dangerous, sick individuals that are terrorizing, killing other people. And how do you go to them? How are you drawn to this terrorism, basically? And um, I started reading more and more and more. And that's how I got to understand um, recruitment techniques. So in the world, you have a good side and a bad side of everything, like even the internet. So the internet, the way you and I use it is different than how they use it. So we have the nice 
butterflies, rainbows side of the internet, and there's a dark side of the internet <laughs> where, <laughs> where it's it might be their own version of butterflies and rainbows, but it's a dark side of the internet where you can legally buy drugs legally, not legally, but like more accessible buy drugs, buy um, guns. Uh, hitmen and so on and i found it fascinating honestly these things like because what we see we see the beautiful way of the world and there's a dark web of chaos in the back so i wanted to dig deeper into this i applied to london and they were like please don't <laughs> please don't do this oh, really? <laughs> yeah um, because they had my best interest uh, um basically in mind because to be fair like when you do a phd you have you have to go through multiple loops of like paperwork and ethics and board meetings um it's not as easy as one might think because there are stuff you need to do so you have to apply to ethics and when you apply to your ethical board uh, you have to prove to them that it's you're not going to get hurt you're not putting anyone's life at risk not the university is not yours uh, because you would have to gather data. So you, I would have to interview people. It was pre-pandemic, mind you, okay? So uh, my interviews were going to be face-to-face. -face. So imagine me sitting face-to-face -face with people who do dodgy stuff. I mean, it's sure. not its not like as nice as you might think. It's nice to, to see and just understand the psyche of what they, why they've become the way they are. But it was, for me, for my own safety, it was not as... Uh, as nice and luckily i had people to tell me okay listen you have to go through this step and uh, it will not as it will not be as easy as you think and like because you have to submit tons of paperwork and i'm like okay you know what yeah it's not uh, as easy as i want it to be they were like go back really think about it and come back if you really want to do it we'll see we'll find a way around it um i went back i really thought about it i'm like um, you know, because it's not just me. When you do a PhD and it, you have your family, you never know. Like you never know, how, like how people might think. I'm like, no, I don't want to put anyone at risk. Not my supervisors, because their name is going to be on there. You know, uh, university. You wouldn't want that to happen. So I'm like, okay, I'll shift. I'll look at the good side of political marketing. Okay, because because okay. you were saying there's a bad side and a good side to everything. I'm like, I'm gonna look at the good side. And I did, and I started looking at um, elections and candidates and why do people vote for specific political candidates. And I was actually really also fascinated by that because Brexit happened, a lot of uh, unexpected things happened in the U.S. elections. So you, you go to sleep, you wake up, you have Trump as a president. These things were not supposed to happen because <laughs> these things were not supposed to happen following a pattern of how people vote. Okay, so realistically speaking, a certain specific candidate has to have this and this and this. And Trump lacked a couple of things. He had other things. Okay, but I found it interesting. And I'm like, okay, let's see why and to speak to people who know why this happened and how to make it happen again. Like, <laughs> how to make this, as use it as a weapon and a tool to, to be used again and again and again. And that's why I decided to do political marketing, to see how 
we do this to optimize voter turnout and to make a specific political candidate more appealing than another. That's so fascinating. Yeah, um, so you went from yeah. So you went from wanting to study terrorism <laughs> yeah. over to political marketing. Yeah, I've never I've never actually told the story to anyone because they'll be like, "What? What?" <laughs> but yeah, that's how I initially started. Well, and that you have to think. Um, I've uh, I'm still going to do this thesis for my undergrad, and I'm sure at some point I'll do a. PhD, but I think a lot of us around the globe have been captivated by terrorism. Yeah. I actually think that I could get uh, the product out in certain ways, just because we have uh, institutions that are uh, interested in certain types of research. Mm -hmm. But like in the United States, uh, there's like uh, this contentious debate over domestic terrorism. Mm -hmm. And that that's that's probably something that I would be afraid to do any kind of research on. Why? Uh, similar to what you're talking mm. about, like uh, actually, you know, getting into the loop of information with people that are thinking in certain ways, uh, having my name on certain kinds of uh, paperwork or speaking publicly about some of this stuff. I feel like that uh, can place a target on your back depending on what your <laughs> cultural references are yeah, yeah unfortunately yeah it, it is quite unfortunate to be honest to be very fair it is you when you grow up you realize you realize basically you can't really do whatever you want to do in this life i mean everything you aim to do has repercussions i mean i didn't realize that when i was younger when i was younger i really wanted to change the world honestly and that's one of the reasons why i got into politics i thought it was going to be fascinating i was going to like make an actual impact a positive act impact that will change society for the better and i grow up and i'm like okay this is way harder than i thought it was going to be like even if you do do it the right way even if you go into parliament and so on it is not as easy because change does not happen overnight change is like this long series of consecutive events that might or might not happen you aim for it but it's not going to happen so and unfortunate that we cannot say and do whatever we want to do in this life but yeah but how about you try yeah. and let me know how that goes for you and if it goes well for you <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll reconsider my yeah. approach <laughs> yeah i'll take the sword i'll take the yeah. sword for both of us <laughs> and let me know um, how that goes <laughs> how do you think like the political climate is in like London or the UK versus Lebanon and and what is the political climate in Lebanon? Oh, what is what a very broad question and they require hours and hours of speaking and I don't think we have hours and hours. <laughs> <laughs> we don't we don't have the time. Listen, I'm going to be very honest. Uh politics in Lebanon to me is quite subjective. Okay? That, that's I've I can never really tell you the actual state of affairs in this specific country because it is my country because it is very subjective what i see other people don't see what other people don't see what other people see i do not see because we're our politics is based on sectarianism it's based on religion and every religion thinks that it is the weaker link or uh, every religion thinks oh they want to cancel us we have a lot of cancel culture in, in lebanon and um, 
it just drags on year after year. We've been through wars. We've been through now we have an economic crisis uh, ongoing since 2019. Um, honestly, we've been through the whole thing. And uh, it's just sad because uh, we have so much potential. Like we have potential in everything. Our, I don't want to use the word resilience because it's such a cliche to say we are resilient, but we are. We make, we try to better ourselves constantly, even when we have nothing. And um, it's a shame. And to compare it to London, I mean, that's not a very just comparison. <laughs> um, yeah, it's not just uh London has what I call I've 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 been around and I feel like London has what I consider one of the best it is a monarchy but in terms of like it's an actual democracy because you vote a certain way we go with what you voted for and they give you the amount of time to finish and do what you set out to do and they judge and they basically not punish but they judge during elections, they'll tell you what they think. So if they don't like a specific party, you can tell from the way they vote that they were not happy with how their even their own party worked. And I like this. Like last week, there was a vote of no confidence for Boris Johnson within his own party. Sure. And I found it fascinating because... There, his own party is telling him, listen, we don't agree with you, what, how you handled this and this and this because there was party gate during the pandemic and they're trying to um, make him pay basically for what he's done during the pandemic and lockdowns and so on. And they called it party gate, which is quite, <laughs> quite funny because, okay, not well, as intense as Watergate, gate, but okay. Uh, um and they did the vote of no confidence within his, his own party. And a lot of people voted against him. I think 141, if I'm not mistaken, which is a big number mm-hmm. from one specific party. And even the media was shocked. Like, oh, okay, there's quite a lot of people within his own party who do not agree with his policies or the way he's running things, or he can basically be the leader of the conservative party. And I f- that's good. That's actually a good thing. That's what democracy is about. To be able to vocally say, okay, I like the party, but I don't like you as the leader. Because one of the things I'm looking at in my PhD is how a candidate can be a brand for the party. So if he's the brand of the whole party, okay, that's wrong because they don't agree with them. Same thing as Trump for, for Trump. Okay, people used to say, oh, he's a Republican, but Trump, in a way, deviated from this. Now, there's a whole, Trump is his own brand. Trumpism. Okay, that's what they call it. Sure. So, so you deviate. So people in the UK, you know, Boris Johnson is still the re- representing the whole party. So they were like, no, listen, uh, we don't think you can represent us as a whole. Obviously, he won, which is a good thing. I don't think the UK can handle uh, multiple votes of no confidence at the moment. So. Uh, but it is what it is this is what I like about this country it gives you the chance to be vocal about what you believe in like they if for example like if you are against a certain policy you can go down to the street and protest it and no one's going to say anything 
it's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's so nice to be able to be this free. And that's it's, it's nice to be free and be able to express yourself. It's in, in our human rights, freedom of expression. <laughs> and I wish more sure. more countries can just basically live by these very basic human rights. They're not that many. They're basic. And, uh, and yeah, have you been to London before? I haven't. Oh, you haven't. But, but, hope, but hopefully one day you will come and you'll see what I mean. And you'll see how different it is to other places in Europe as well. And to obviously Middle East and the US and so on. But, sure. but yeah. I can imagine. But when you say, um, when you're referring to Lebanese politics, you brought up sectarianism. Mm. But could you, could you break that down for the layman? Okay. Uh, just to be super brief, um, after the civil war, we had a very lengthy civil war uh, back in 1975 till 1990. So we had a, a lot of people, honestly, this is one of the, it's one of the darkest moments of Lebanese history. A lot of people died. A lot of people died for different political parties. And within like the same family, you can have two people from different political parties that were fighting one another during the Lebanese civil war. It was this bad. So imagine you and your brother killing each other for your political parties and so on. So it was this, that bad. Um, wow. So after that, these all sat like on a table. I'm just trying to put an image for, for you just to see how it was. It, it didn't happen this way, actually, but just trying to summarize it. So they all sat together. Listen, we have to live with one another. Uh, they drew something called the National Pact. So that happened then. Again, Lebanon is beautiful and amazing, but it does not have, um, it, it doesn't act alone. So we have a lot of imaginary hands, I like to call them, people in the backstage t- telling us what to do and uh, how to be. So um, something called the Ta'if Agreement was put into place. The Ta'if Agreement divided Lebanon into sects. So let's say the head of parliament is from a certain sect, the head of uh, uh, the president is from another sect, trying to give all the religions their rights. By rights, I mean slash power. So we we all fight for power, okay? So they all gave them a certain specific amount of power. But even within how it's made, even ministries and so on, we're divided into sects. And um, it drags on. So even like if this person is not competent enough to be in this position, but because he's from a certain sect, which is like a different religion, he'll be in that position. And that's not corruption, but it led to a lot of corruption. And now we're in a very, very, very complicated situation where our money was stolen due to a Ponzi scheme and everything that we have in the bank is gone. And I'm putting this in the most simple terms because it's way more complicated than this. It's years and years and years of corruption, so over 50 years of corruption. And uh, the status quo is super engraved and ingrained to that. We can, I don't think we can fix it in a year or two or three or four. It's going to take years to recover from the mess we're in right now. Um, hopefully, fingers crossed. I'm, very, I'm a very hopeful person. 
Uh, I think it, it will happen not in the near future, but maybe 20 years down the line when I'm too old to remember this conversation. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, not to say that countries don't, like the majority of countries don't have problems. Every country has fundamental problems of how they work, but we have many. And a lot of countries fix their, their problems. So I don't want to compare because nothing is comparable to what we're going through. But you fix and you mend and you better the situation. We didn't. We just glued it with very, very bad quality glue <laughs> that broke. <laughs> and it broke all at the same time. Okay. And we found ourselves in in the dark, literally. Okay, so we don't have electricity. <laughs> Imagine, these are our wow. basic human rights, which are electricity and just water, and we don't have them. And even if you have the money to have electricity, a lot of people have money abroad, they work abroad, they have funding, so they're able to fund electricity back home because we buy generators, so it's not like the, the government gives us electricity, so you have to buy a generator. And... Uh, and um, purchase diesel and so on. Yeah, so even if you have that, it's not accessible really? all the time because it's everyone wants it. So restaurants, hotels, they, they all need that. They all need generators. And I remember last summer I was in Lebanon. It was one of the hardest summers of my life because I had to work and I had, to, I had classes online and I didn't have electricity, so I didn't have Wi-Fi. And I didn't have petrol in my car to go to a cafe to get Wi-Fi from the cafe. Oh, wow. And it was really hard for me. And I make do. I just called an Uber. But even the Ubers were charging a lot of money because petrol was uh, was not easily found back in last summer. And uh, you had to bootleg it. <laughs> I mean, you had to find, you had to know a guy that knows a guy. So, uh, sure. yes, yeah, so that's how it is. It's still beautiful, though. I like to finish every sentence <laughs> with how beautiful my country is. I love it so much. That's the downside. When you love your country so much, you can't bear seeing it this way, you know? So, uh, oh yeah. It's like when you have really high hopes for a very toxic boyfriend or girlfriend. He's super toxic. But you love him, you know? So that's the same situation. <laughs> that's the same situation. That's a fair way yeah, to put that, it. Yeah, that's how we put it basically back home. So we just call it toxic relationship. But yeah. But so but so growing up in Lebanon being influenced by the the thinking, the culture, the politics, it sounds like this motivated you, like to study politics, to try to achieve some greater understanding. Um, in in the political realm, is that right? That's that's partly correct. Yeah, um, you have to go. To be fair, when you when you are Lebanese, I feel like um, you have to put a lot of influence on how your parents raise you. Your parents can raise you to be super uh, sectarian. They can raise you to be super judgmental um, about other people on based on their religion and which political party they follow. Again, I have amazing parents. We've never discussed this at home. We don't discuss, oh, this person is from this religion, oh, this person is from this political party. Honestly, we don't care. As long as we're healthy and we're happy, we don't really care. And um, my, far, my father always used to tell me, 
don't ever ask and don't even care to know because what will it change what will it change if i know what religion you're from um in politics i mean some people are very religious because they're religious it's on them but to bring religion into politics honestly it doesn't make any sense um and because i was raised a certain way not to care and to see the the essence and the core of what politics should be and to have a political will basically we don't have political ideas in lebanon we have sectarian ideas okay what is your political platform what are you running based on what are you going to do to my country that's going to make it better we had an election recently okay and yeah it was the last month and um the majority of the people who won okay are the same people who was who always been there because no one ran on a specific political platform based on ideas and okay this is what i'm going to do there's actually one party that did that but obviously with the misinformation and different types of propaganda they ruin their chances uh and that also comes into play lebanon has a lot of propaganda a lot and every party practices propaganda and that's one of the reasons why hopefully when i do finish my phd i want to really research misinformation disinformation propaganda because that's one aspect of political marketing you know you can use that to sway public opinion and you can use that to reinforce uh, opinion bias so that's sure. so interesting because okay so for my page i'm going to tell you something interesting I, i can't tell you who i spoke to but i spoke to a lot of interesting people um okay. when i publish i'll send you like an email of everyone i spoke to but i cannot do that now yeah but yeah so i don't know i got really lucky with my uh participants and i'm i really feel blessed because i had to inter- so i have multiple phases for my data collection i'm done with phase 1 i'm in my phase 2 so phase 1 was interviewing uh campaign experts so campaign managers digital creators people who worked on campaigns in the us and um so political consultants even political marketing professors because they would know theory and i spoke to around 34 different individuals and these 34 individuals range from uh, digital campaigners to campaign managers uh to again everything i've just stated and the majority of people i asked what are your thoughts on fake news okay so to be fair the us did really amplify the meaning of fake news okay sure i haven't heard of it before we used to call it maybe propaganda but it really put it out there it created the term basically <laughs> and they said something super interesting and i've i haven't thought about it before and until they said it they're like multiple people said that and i found it re- it's like an like something to really ponder there isn't something called fake news there's no such thing every piece of news is someone's real news so even if you come to me and you tell me kathy this person is not a good person because he did this 
I like this person. I will not believe you. No matter what you say, you can show me the proof and I can read the proof and I'm, I can blame you. You're lying. I, I will tell you, you're lying. This is fabricated. Sure. I can do the same to someone you like and you're going to you're going to tell me no you're lying because mm-hmm. fake news only exists if you're willing to dig deeper and have an open mind fake news does not exist if you're just take news as it is it's someone's truth so every piece of fake news is someone's truth and i found it so interesting because it's true and I've seen it and I've noticed it. And I see, for example, you tweet something so controversial. It gets, it gets like a thousand retweets in an hour. And then turns out it's a lie. And because he's a journalist or someone that has a large following, he justifies himself. I'm like, okay, sorry, this was not true. No one reacts to that. No one reacts to the actual truth. Because no one wants to hear it. Because it goes against what they believe. So it's um, it's just interesting how people think and how uh, they, they don't want to seek the truth anymore. They're just okay with their, uh, their opinion of things. And um, yeah, I feel like all of us, like Lebanon, the US, the UK, we're all okay with how we see things and our opinion of things. And we don't want to dig deeper anymore. We're too lazy. I don't know if it's just laziness or we're scared of the truth or I don't know. I don't know. And then that's what I want to see later on when I finish this PhD. I want to like dig deeper in that research to see why. Why do we stop from actually knowing the truth? So. Do you think that, do you think that's a recent dynamic or do you think that's something that has always existed in society at large i feel like now with social media it's more apparent because you can now see it more so i feel like before social media with propaganda and like lies and stuff we didn't really know what was going on because we didn't have the tools for it but now the tools are there so now even if you tell me a piece of misinformation it's my job to go and double check it's my job to go and double check if it's going to affect me in my society very lame example last week my friend sent me this um this facebook post and she was like oh this person died he's a famous uh, uh, chef i'm like he didn't die she's like yes they posted it on facebook and i'm like yeah because facebook is known to be such a reliable source of information i'm like just google it and you'll see and you'll see that it's not um that it's not the case Another story yesterday on Twitter, I was there was a post. So there's now we have this medical issue of um, multiple cases of hepatitis hepatitis in Lebanon. So there was this doctor advocating for um, vaccines. He was just calling on the minister and the World Bank to please provide us with vaccines because it's treatable right away. But if it's not, it can really uh, hurt the individuals. So. He wrote a really long thread and uh, he, he seemed obviously concerned. This man, okay, had nothing as this random person comments like, oh, it's in a place called Tripoli in Lebanon. I was like, Tripoli is not in Lebanon, it's in Libya. 
And I got really upset because this man passionately wrote a long thread about me. <laughs> <laughs> about the situation and how dire how dire we are in need of vaccines and he's like, I'm like and I rudely said but I, I know I admit it was rude I'm like use the map I just told him use the map because mm. there are multiple places called Tripoli in the world why are you just taking away attention from his thread still like also like tagging other people I'm like use the map he was like I did what's your point and he just used the map to show me that Tripoli is in Libya. And I'm like, and I rudely also said, so you don't also know, don't know how to use Google because uh-huh. <laughs> because it's just Google. We don't need this. We honestly, kids are getting hepatitis in Lebanon. We don't need you to tell us if Lebanon, if Tripoli is in Lebanon or not. We know what we're talking about. And I went to his profile. He's a biomedical scientist he seems smart enough to know how to do research why don't you want to do research anymore like why are we stopping and just put tripoli lebanon you'll find it there it's not like really digging deep and as he was upset he was like why weren't you able to tell me this in a nice story i'm like yeah just leave me alone right now because we're all concerned with this viral case of hepatitis that's going on in Lebanon. You're talking to me whether like Tripoli's in Lebanon or not. Can you not? And I find it funny because I expect from people who are knowledgeable to do their research. And I don't know if that's wrong of me to think, but I expect now everyone to do research. With COVID, what's, hap- what's happening in the world and so on, do your own research. Everyone has to work harder and educating themselves. Like, I can't expect to find everything on Facebook. It's not there. Facebook is not for knowledge. Facebook is for other things at the moment. Go beyond Facebook and Instagram and just use proper search tools. And that's what I'm... Honestly, when I, I also want to be an advocate for that. I just please use proper search tools because it's really annoying because it, it just creates more chaos. You don't know the intensity of just one bad piece of information. And, and with technology, it's becoming harder and harder. Now we have things that are called deep fakes. Have you heard of deep fakes? Sure. Yes, I've actually um, hosted talks with people at Google. Yeah. Uh, MIT and that's um, no code uh, uh, startups in France yeah. and other parts of the world uh, that build deep fakes and video games and so forth. Exactly. And so, one of the things that I've also come across is, are deep fakes and how Im- impactful they are. They can seriously hinder democracy. One bad deep fake, mm-hmm. not one really good deep fake, I mean, can really, really, really damage uh the world specific countries because the way they're designed and the way they're implemented is so smart it is actually really smart because you can just put one deep fake before one election you'll have no time to authenticate it and it can hinder results democracy create chaos and although we're not at that stage yet because it needs a lot of time for us to get there but some people I spoke to are actually concerned. And I found it concerning. If they're concerned, I should be concerned. <laughs> if people sure. like in the field are concerned, why wouldn't I be concerned? So Yeah, I think um my thought is that the uh 
there's always been propaganda and bad information. Mm -hmm. It's just that information was in the hands of a few institutions, mm -hmm. maybe a hundred years ago. And I think what has happened is that it's now uh, the ability to create information for influence mm -hmm. is has been distributed by way of social media. But I was at the I was at the uh, I think it was at the Guggenheim mm. last uh, summer in New York City. And, uh, you know, because there, there's all this rhetoric that says that uh, traditional institutions, academic institutions, uh, old school media institutions, especially when print journalism was a thing, had this mission to provide objective analysis. Mm which I think is, is bullshit, but, <laughs> uh, but there was, um, a part of this, uh, civil rights movement, there was this challenge to authority, uh, that started to bring in this, like thinking around the subjectivity of media and, uh, that this, this art, uh, exhibit highlighted like 60 covers 60 top of the fold front page covers of the washington post mm. and 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 it it discussed events that were taking place across the world but it demonstrated that the washington post had 95 percent of the people on the top of the fold were white men mm. And so they're like, how does that affect the way that people perceive the world or the information uh, ecosystem? And uh, why are these media outlets or these institutions allowed to control information to a level where it's definitely not inclusive of the, the, the broader society, uh, but it's also hailed as being objective? So, so I feel like this this evolution towards uh, more people having control of information is one thing, but then but but what I what I've been studying is like how governments are using technologies to shape the behavior and thinking of citizens, especially on the internet. So like it's probably common knowledge that. Uh, the things that people are communicating across social media have the ability, like you're saying, to be disruptive. And so now I feel like there is this uh, there is this race to building the most effective repression technologies. And I feel like they take many forms, not, not just social media, but even China has been able to turn its large social media entities into state-run enterprises, mm -hmm. and it can do incredible analysis uh, across these large language models of data that it collects in the same way that Facebook or Google collects data, except it is centralized and controlled by the state. So the state has deep profiles deep amounts of data on individuals and again can use that information to target people broadly or with precision and so i think other governments are looking at social media mobile devices the internet and they're like oh china has been very effective at almost kind of centrally planning or orchestrating 
these repression technologies at a scale that people have never seen. And so I feel like there are other governments that are like, well, how do we find ways to prevent people from spreading information online that we deem as a threat to the state? And so to like, to some of your earlier points this is why I think your perspective on um, political uh, marketing and uh, communication is uh, super fascinating uh, is because like you said, like now there are political communication strategies that are far detached from political ideas or political institutions. Mm -hmm. Like, like, for example, Donald Trump, who can make up words, make up meanings, like is still rejecting the legitimacy of democracy and supposedly the pinnacle of uh, democracy around the globe. He's still rejecting the validity of uh, election results. So we, so we have actors like this that have been effective at gaining uh, steam through these digital uh, technologies, right, through mm -hmm. their communication. But so... So, so from your perspective, like, do you think that there are more bad actors than good actors that are using technology in the political realm? Or, or how do you, maybe that's not even the right question. Like, how do you see the people that are communicating in the relevant ways that uh, political groups or institutions communicate today? You know, something you answered that question while you were talking. Um... A lot of countries and governments are trying to control public opinion. And I like that you use that word control. It, it is the most accurate word, I guess. Um, and do people know that they're being controlled? Do they know like um, all of these countries and governments have our data and they can use and target us the way we want? Do they know? Do they care? Like, I don't know if they care. And one thing I did in one of my classes, so I was teaching uh, students last pre-pandemic, actually, um, marketing in the digital era, how people use everything that's digital to sell them stuff. And this is one of the most simple examples. I took their phone and I put the phone and we uh, sat in a circle. I'm like, listen, there's this discuss a specific topic okay and let's discuss it for like five ten minutes and then we'll scroll through instagram and i did that we did that we started talking about skateboards or so i don't know what we spoke about for like a good 10 minutes and i told my students please pick up your phone and scroll through social media first post second post third post was a targeted ad for that specific thing we were talking about and these are very they're young they're 19 it was it's their first year of university uh it's their first class and i'm like this is what we're going to do i'm going to destroy your trust in the world and this is what, <laughs> <laughs> this is what I how could you and this is because i want i want them they're they're young they're they're going to do these students are going to do amazing amazing things in life if they don't know what's going what's waiting for them how will they be able to use that for their benefit and i'm like listen social media works like this we're targeted every day every day we're targeted even in our political ads it we're targeted so in 2016 i guess it was easier for them to target us 
Now in 2020, it's less easier. It's basically harder. And I spoke to someone, bright, bright political campaigner who did digital for one of the campaigns at some point in his life. And, and he specifically told me how easy it was in 2016 to tap into elements of social media no one knew nothing about. And now in 2020, because you optimize a, cer- a certain tool so much, because you used it, whether ethically or not, but you used it, you, there were no rules against it, and you knew there were no rules and you used it, okay? And they made it so much harder for you to use in 2020 and basically with reforms and the way things are going to go, it's going to be way harder. But harder for who? Which basically side is this helping? So that's what I find intriguing in politics. So you have governments that are highly influential on social media like in twitter and they have just people optimizing uh bots on twitter all they do all day is reply to people that disrespect their countries or uh say something wrong or so on and so on about their country and all they do is attack and attack and attack and imagine the funding that goes into this all that money to make something look nice to make something look real even if it's not real and it's so we're controlled on it every day and a huge chunk of the population is aware that we're being controlled but do they care I mean, so many documentaries came out after uh, Cambridge Analytica. So many. But I thought there was going to be a bigger outcry. That our data, like you said, is being given away. I don't have anything interesting in my life. <laughs> I think that's what people, major- <laughs> I think that's what the majority thinks. I'm not that interesting. But they don't know that the color of your hair is interesting as data religion height a sexual orientation if you have kids how many times you travel a year how much do you spend what did you buy where did you buy it from these are interesting because based on this sure. whether i'm just selling you a diet coke or whatever this new product or i'm selling you a political candidate all of these things matter if you Google a certain medicine, if you, I will know what's wrong with you. And I will come to you and knock on your door and tell you, hey, my political platform is free uh, healthcare because this and this and this. If I, have, if I know you have three kids, I'll knock on your door and tell you, hey, my political platform is better public schooling. Sure. People know. You think people don't care, but people care even about the mundane stuff. So, um, so yeah, it's scary. It is as interesting as it. It is scary. Um, and you know what I found super interesting? When people really dig deeper into this, it consumes them. So my advice to to you, because you're going, you like stuff like this, and to me as well. 
I always disconnect. <laughs> I always disconnect for a while because if you spend like a month reading politics, it's, uh, too, much. it's too much. It is too much. And um, I heard it a lot. I heard it from a lot of political campaigners that I spoke to. It gets too much. It, it is not an easy thing to think about constantly. And that's why before you, at the end of the day, you just disconnect and don't read the news and don't let it consume you because it is too much. I mean, politics is a, a roller coaster of emotion. Um, yeah. yeah, and I feel like we've had some contentious elections this year. Yeah. Like in uh, Pakistan. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> maybe Turkey coming up mm. and definitely the United States in uh, 2024. Yeah. <laughs> um, because... Also, don't you find like what while you're growing up? So before, I used to only care about Lebanon. So Lebanese okay. elections used to matter to me. What's going on in Lebanon? But as I started maturing and growing up and so on, I started caring about other countries as well. So I would. A lot of people asked me, "Why are you?" So my data connection is only the U.S. They were like, "Why the U.S.? Why someone coming from Lebanon?" would want to gather data, um, have a case study, the U.S. I'm like, why not? The U.S. teaches other people how to be, basically. The U.S. exports techniques <laughs> in political marketing. Sure. I mean, you always go to the source. Why would I go talk to the sister when I can talk to the mother? You always sure. go to the source. And uh, mother and sisters giving power to women, yeah? So always go to the source and everything that you do. And I'm like, why not the U.S.? I mean, it teaches us. And it tells us how to eat burgers and so on and fries. It exports culture. And exports, it will export political marketing. It did export political marketing. It brought, it, it brought some techniques to the U.K. and uh, obviously other places. And uh, it's just fascinating because when you grow older, you start realizing it's not only where you live. There are other places in the world that are more powerful and more impactful. And now, yeah, you're saying Turkey and Pakistan, and you start wondering about these interesting things that happen around the world. And, oh, there's a coup here. Oh, there's an election here. Oh, and uh, it's fun. It's exhausting, but fun. No, it's super fascinating. Yeah. It is exhausting. <laughs> I do have to take a break from it like you do yeah. occasionally. Um, especially any research or um, papers that I have to spend time with that give these very dry um, ways of looking at war. Mm. Sometimes they're like completely devoid of emotion uh, and it's just measurements, uh, heuristics and models for war that so sometimes that can be intense for me and i i mean i grew up in a community that has five military bases one of the most powerful military communities in the united states mm. uh, so that uh gave me some bias that i had to rinse off over the years mm. because now i'm in my mid-30s so it's very hard to see politics or uh whatever the hell else was going on in the world outside of that little town mm. <laughs> um, no but it's good so i it's good to be like uh, not always influenced with your surroundings as well. So that's also like it's healthy, you know. I feel like uh, you form your own opinion. 
and you have your own set of ideas that you want to incorporate into your personality. And basically, it'll shape, it shapes you and the way you think and the moving forward. You'll see it will also influence you on the way you view things in, in life. And, um, and yeah. So you're doing your undergrad now? Or you're... Yeah, I'm at the University of Colorado okay. in uh, Boulder. Okay. Yeah. So do you, at an undergrad level, yeah, you do a research paper, right? Yes. At the end. Yeah, I'll let... I'll end up doing yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Because I wanted... But it, yeah, go ahead. It, it'll probably be... I Like, my background's in enterprise technology, mm. so I still work with tech companies in New York, San Francisco, other parts of the world. But uh, uh, so the digital stuff's fascinating because I'm watching technologies that I've been using or implementing for a while now mm. be repurposed mm. for other... Uh, use cases <laughs> so like the uh, the whole digital uh, authoritarianism kind of vein is fascinating to me but but Kathy we're like almost at time mm. and so I'm wondering like two things first it's been amazing to talk to you but where do people find you and then are there things that you're working on now that are coming in the near future that you want to share uh where do people find me? Yeah, so I'm going to give you my address. No. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, for, for PhD purposes, I created a website. So it's www.catherinefawaz.com. So all my research is there and you can like, I'm linked. So you'll find me in my socials there. But also like these are, this is a very crucial time for me. So I'm, I want to submit. So I have a very intense couple of months ahead i'm giving myself like two weeks of summer and then i have to really focus on writing up and finishing my data collection so till the end of the year it's going to be just phd stuff until i finish and then um i'm gonna get into research after that but really crucial seven months ahead and i am beyond stressed imagine like this is the culmination of three years and a half of my life by the, that time will be four of my life into this and imagine someone eventually reads and i'm like yeah we don't like it <laughs> and i'm like okay oh no <laughs> like imagine i'm like that's my worst fear i'm getting nightmares actually i'm not sleeping well anymore because it's closer and closer to date and it's just stressful and if anyone wants to do a PhD, just make sure that you are okay with criticism and okay with people telling you they don't like what you're doing. It is not an easy task mm. at all, especially if you're doing something related to like politics and something super subjective. When you're doing something super subjective, people will criticize everything about it if it goes against what they think. And it took me a while to understand this. And because I have amazing supervisors, honestly, they kept telling me how okay it is. Because you write papers to conferences and maybe someone that reads your paper doesn't like your content because it's super subjective. And if someone else reads it, they'll tell you it's amazing, it's fascinating. And this is what happened to me. One person told me, I'm going to, cre I'm going to cause chaos at this conference. He would literally said, you're going to cause problems at this conference based on your uh, paper. And someone else told me it's really good. Oh, wow. Yeah, because it's politics, you know. 
And um, people think that uh, when you discuss politics, chairs are going to start flying. When it's not the case. (laughs) We're all mature individuals and we're discussing facts. We're not discussing opinion. But but the chairs do fly Yeah, the chairs, yeah. As long as it's chairs, I'm okay with. Uh, yeah, okay. I can dodge this chair. It's quite big. Yeah, I, yeah I'm a fast runner as well, <laughs> so it's all good. But, <laughs> but I, yeah. I mean, when you discuss stuff so delicate, I guess, yeah. I don't know if that's the word. People will have an opinion. It's not like you're discussing, even like random things. Now everyone has an opinion about everything. So you have to always be mindful that everyone has an opinion about everything nowadays. Even the way you look, yeah. yeah so, so they'll have an opinion about yeah. your studies. Yeah, uh, I wanted That's to good ask. Advice, and I'm looking yeah. forward to. Oh, go ahead. I have a question go for ahead. you before I we finish this. So, yeah, you just mentioned digital and social media and so on. Do you think digital and social media have an impact in politics, basically in political marketing, because? I want to rephrase this in a better way. What kind of impact do you think social media has in political marketing? Hmm. If you don't know the answer to it, just tell me. I don't know. I'm I'm really curious to see like what people think, what sort of impact it has. Uh, because I went into this research thinking it's a make or break kind of impact. And uh, I realized it is not. <laughs> and uh, I just want to see what other people might think. Because it will be really interesting for my findings. So, I, um, don't, I, so when I think of digital, uh, I'm thinking of like controlling traffic on the internet. Okay. Or usually natural language processing mm. for censorship. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like... Uh, like if the question is, does social media impact uh, like voters, for example, mm. uh, I think that those technologies, when they're used for political marketing, reaffirm existing beliefs, mm. but I don't think they create or shape new beliefs. I think that would be very hard to do to disrupt somebody's thought through some kind of social media campaign and then create space for new thoughts to emerge. Mm. I can't imagine that most people can't do that walking down the street. (laughs) Like, could you imagine if we could like disrupt the way that people think about their religion and then install new thinking uh, on religion in that group using the internet? So I think that there are a lot of people that overstate the capabilities of social media or the capabilities of these various influence campaigns and then they forget that influence campaigns have been going on since people could reach one to many and some of the most sophisticated ways of exporting state sponsored propaganda mm-hmm. especially uh u.s state sponsored propaganda ha- have been through the radio airwaves mm-hmm. you know this thing we can talk so, about that's just my thought. no but this these topics you can discuss for hours and hours i mean I feel like these things are never ending and there's always something to say. But we need ten more hours. <laughs> exactly. And like it'll be yeah, what the then hell? it'll be like a nice focus group. We can all sit and just throw chairs. Uh but uh <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but we just bring like um 
we'll bring like uh, all of the worst things about politics and religion into one conversation. Yeah. Oh, that'll be like a really interesting thing. You can you can do that because <laughs> <laughs> there is so many different things you can talk about. But yeah. Oh yeah. But yeah, no. But this was nice. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm glad that you joined, and uh, I'm sure people are going to go to your website and try to learn more. Yeah. And don't, don't die through the next seven months. No, we'll no, all be no, no. wishing you to have the least stress yeah, possible. Hopefully, hopefully. And uh, again, good luck on your undergrad, and we'll speak soon. Thank you. Thanks, guys. You're welcome.